Welcome to episode six of the new podcast series from Understanding Society, the academic study that captures life in the UK in the 21st century. Understanding Society is a longitudinal survey. Every year, we question every member of thousands of the same households across the UK about key areas of their life. In each episode of this series, we're exploring how our data has been used in a key area. We're looking at what it's told us when analysed and what it's informed as a result. I'm Catherine MacDonald, your series host. In this episode, we're focusing on education and how children and parents have been affected by the closure of schools during the COVID-19 lockdowns. My first guest is Professor Birgitta Rabe from the Institute of Social and Economic Research at the University of Essex. My second is Tom McBride, Director of Evidence at the Early Intervention Foundation. I began by asking Birgitta how she conducted her research. We used the Understanding Society study and and importantly the COVID-19 survey, which was set up in, in rocket speed right at the beginning of the pandemic. And that enabled our team to look at mental health of children before and during the pandemic. And this is exactly where other teams struggle because they a lot of surveys were set up during the pandemic, but we have no pre-measures, so we don't know how mental health changed. And we're in a unique position with our survey to do just that. So what we did in our study, we looked at school closures, obviously, and as parents, we all remember that from the 23rd of March 2020, schools were suddenly closed. And then in England in June 2020, the, the government issued guidance to open primary schools for some priority year groups. Those were reception and year one, so the very youngest in primary school, and also year six, the ones that were getting ready to go to secondary school. They were prioritized to come back for six weeks until the start of the holidays. So that allows us to compare the mental health of children who were and were not prioritized to have an extra six weeks of schooling. And how did you measure mental health? The, the way we measure mental health is through the, the so-called strength and difficulty questionnaire. And this is a screening tool that um, measures the emotional and behavioral difficulties that children have. And what did you find? We found that the mental health effect of school closures was, was large and quite strikingly so. We found that um, over five domains, an added up score of total difficulties rose by two. So this means that A child, for example, who was not fidgeting ever before the pandemic now started fidgeting all the time. Or to give another example of a behavior, a child who never had tantrums before the pandemic now seemed to be having it all the time. That's about the extent of the change. And we can also compare this to learning loss because there are first assessments of the learning loss in year twos by the autumn term of 2021 was 15% of a standard deviation. And we find that the, the rise in mental health problems is more than twice as big as that. So this is a first indication that possibly the mental health toll of the pandemic has been bigger than, than the toll on the learning. And did those results differ by gender? We weren't able yet to look in much detail at it, but first um, analysis indicates that boys were more heavily affected, especially in the hyperactivity domain. So anything to do with what I just mentioned, the fidgeting and, and things like those. Yeah, it seems that boys suffered more from that. And we have first indications that possibly the girls actually had, um, had improved 
of mental health in one domain, which is the peer domain, um, indicating that maybe some of the pressures of schools went away when the children were not at school. And were you able to get a sense of how long the negative effect on mental health might last? Yeah, so that's a really interesting aspect of this and quite worrisome as well, I'm afraid to say. We were able to look at mental health again in the at the end of September in 2020. So this was after the summer holidays. And we see that the differences between the children who did and did not um, have the opportunity to go to school for an extra six weeks still lasted until that end of September. So even when they were back for at school for four weeks, those um, summer differences were still visible. And this indicates for us that just going back to school doesn't suggest there will be any automatic recovery. We think that you need to give other types of support other than just slotting back into the school day to help children catch up. And obviously in our study, we can only look at this six week difference in school received. So we don't know the effect of these repeated school closures that we have seen over the past 18 months. And we don't know whether those negative effects might just be cumulative or are they exacerbating over time? We don't know that. But uh, there is cause for concern there, obviously. And it is a real cause for concern, isn't it? Because, as you say, you were able to compare those years that went back for that six weeks against those who didn't. But we all know that the majority of children have missed out on some schooling across the lockdown. So we're talking about something that's going to have affected most children, aren't we? Yes, absolutely. I mean, all children missed some school. And I think the accumulated number of weeks, I don't know off the top of my head, but I think it's something like 18 weeks. So much more than what we're looking at. And I think one important thing is that obviously we are worried about mental health in, you know, it's an, it's something that we don't like seeing. It's an aim in its own right for children to have a, a good mental health. But we also know from, from the way that children learn that um, having a healthy mind is really important for educational catch up because you can't learn if you have um, mental difficulties. So if we're looking at a catch up now, a recovery from the pandemic, looking at mental health is really central to that. Yes. And your findings also demonstrated, though, didn't they, that that school provides so much more than an education. It's all about the social aspect and many more things. Yeah, this is something, uh, you know, a broader view on, on schools that I think has been highlighted by the pandemic that we can see that school is really important for daily physical exercise. It's important for eating meals, eating healthy meals that comply to food, uh, school food standards. And as you say, for socialising, for interacting, for practising, you know, interactions and all of that. I think um, the pandemic has really highlighted that and schools need support to be able to do all of that. Now, you also looked at learning loss by comparing lockdowns one and two. Again, what did you find there? For learning loss, we were looking at the different inputs uh, that were being given into learning, because you have to think of this of not just the children learning, but you obviously also have the parents helping with, with distance learning. And then you have the schools that need to provide the resources for families to be able to learn. So what we looked at was that um, at the different, different inputs given by schools and uh, children and parents. 
One thing that we found was that schools in their offering of online and offline lessons uh, offered quite a bit less at the beginning of the pandemic when everyone was still figuring out what, uh, what to do. And by the time of the second school closure, there was a legal obligation to provide remote education resources. And we find that that actually did have bite. There's a large increase in both online live real-time lessons and also offline materials given to children, both in primary and secondary school. And it was quite interesting for us to also see that um, the school materials offered did not really correlate with any of the school characteristics that we were able to look at. For example, we looked at the offset scores, the type of schools, were they academies or local authority maintained schools, and was it a deprived um, intake of students or not? And none of these things really had a, a large bearing on how many lessons were offered, both online and offline. And that um, sheds an interesting light on schools and on the role of, of school leadership, really. We, we speculate that it must have been the initiative of, of the school leadership that has led to children having different experiences in different schools. And were there identifiable circumstances for children at home which seemed to determine who was able to do better at home learning? Well, this has often in the discussion, there was often an assumption that children from deprived backgrounds weren't getting as much input. But looking just at the time spent by parents and children, we don't find that to be the case. Especially for parents, we do find they spend more time with younger children, which is kind of what you would expect. Uh, younger children need more, you know, one-to-one -one help to actually stay focused and all of that. We didn't find any systematic differences by whether the, children, the households were, you know, the parents were highly educated or from high income groups. None of that was present. And this was quite surprising for us. Um, looking at the children, um, more time was um, older students were able to work longer than younger. And girls, interestingly, were working more than boys. But uh, and here we found some small differences in children from high income and high educating households working more. But um, it wasn't a stark difference. And another really interesting thing I thought was we also have information about additional learning resources. And these are learning resources that are not provided by schools, but that families seek out on the web or wherever they can get hold of them. And we have information about how much these were being used. And we see that, especially in the first lockdown, a large proportion of families were looking for resources. So they weren't getting them from the schools in some cases that much. But we find that more than 60% of primary school families were looking for free resources elsewhere and this then declined um, by the second lockdown when the schools were doing more and similarly in secondary schools we find uh, more than around 50 percent using them and that declined by the second school closure and again we don't find a big difference by family background and whether people were using or not using those resources and that really paints a picture of families reacting quite flexibly to the situation, finding their own materials when they weren't provided, and then using the school materials once those were coming forward and actually spending more time then by the, by the second lockdown, which was exactly the intention of the legal mandate to provide resources. And none of this varied so much by, by family background. So if it is true, and I think some evidence is already coming through looking at the outcomes of children, if it's true that 
children from more deprived backgrounds uh, have you know, worse learning loss than, than the more affluent children, then we think this is not because families didn't try or didn't want to engage. This is not what our research shows at all. We think it must be more to do with the structural situation that families are in. So for example, the much discussed issue with accessing IT resources, do children have their own laptop to work on or none at all or sharing with other people? Do they have a quiet study space? Do they even have a desk to sit at? These kinds of things might be more important as well as where you live. So the days um, of school missed, obviously, were much higher in the north of, of England, where um, infection rates were higher. And so school people were home quarantining more often and all of this. So we think it's other factors and it's not the families. It's interesting you mentioned boys because they fared worse on both counts, haven't they? That you, you mentioned that they had suffered more from a mental health point of view and that they also found home learning harder. Yeah, we found they, um, they were spending less time working at home, but we also found that when the, the resources were increased uh, by the second time the schools were closed, that boys really benefited from online live lessons. So they found it, they, their own time studying increased a lot when they were given online live lessons to attend. And I think there's just a lesson there that, um, you know, this is a good thing, especially for boys, and that equalised the difference between girls and boys quite well. Now, you also looked at the effect school closures had on parents. What did you see there? Well, we were interested in school closures because a lot of um, papers have come out showing how the pandemic overall uh, led to a decline in mental health amongst adults, about amongst women in particular. But there was nothing about what school closures in particular did to the mental health of parents. And we might think that school closures, you know, are important because the burden of the home learning that we just talked about is quite large. The confusion around how do you work all the different systems online, the bickering potentially of, of children being sat at home all day long. It's, it's quite stressful and it also might affect the ability of parents to work when you have the children at home. So um, this is why we wanted to look at school closures and we we used the same difference in the in the ability to return to school in the summer 2020 as we did for children's mental health. And our findings are quite striking in that we find this big difference between mothers and fathers. We find a quite substantial decline in, in mental health for mothers, but not for fathers. Fathers seem largely unaffected by the school closures themselves. Then drilling down a little bit deeper in why that might be, we found that um, the decline in mother's mental health was not affected by their ability to work or to work more hours as much as loneliness. Loneliness increased alongside the school closures. So it might be the lack of, of um, socialising around school, school peers, um, school runs, all of that that might be driving the worst mental health amongst mothers. So moving on to look at impact. So who's listened to and used this research so far, both the mental health research and the learning loss research? Oh, this has been really interesting and varied to see uh, who is picking up on the research. We have been cited in the Children's Society's The Good Childhood Report and in other government reports as well. 
we have been asked by the American Chamber of Commerce in Cambodia to host a breakfast morning for their members talking about the results because they are of interest to parents. And I guess our, our biggest and most exciting success has been our input into the vaccination decision, the decision to vaccinate 12 to 15 year olds um, for COVID. This came about, um, you may remember that the JCVI recommended not vaccinating children of that age group because they felt on balance the health um, benefits didn't outweigh the risk. Then the government asked this, the chief medical officer for their opinion, and they asked them to, to think a little bit more broadly about health. And this is exactly when the mental health then came in. And uh, the CMO recommended vaccination of 12 to 15 year olds because um, school closures would impact the mental health of children. And so it's, it's important to prevent school closures at all costs, if you will. And we now find that more than 2 million children are eligible for the vaccine. And in the, in the key published inputs to that decision right at the top, we have um, our studies cited because there aren't, there aren't that many studies into this topic. And so we were obviously delighted to see our work have a real concrete impact on the lives of children, including some of our own in the team. And not only a concrete impact, but an impact that happens so fast, you know, when you think just how recent the research is, and then already you've had a massive influence, that must feel amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. And I have to say, you know, everyone is is working at such high speed. The projects I've been talking about, they're both funded through rapid response calls. We have had to be really fast. The Understanding Society team, I have to stress this here again, they have been amazing in setting up a, a survey which went into the field in, in April, a brand new survey. This usually has years, years in lead up time. And they had basically a month and were already running a module on homeschooling. They were so professional and, and responsive. And then um, our team as well, we, we were working flat out with children at home and, and trying to produce these results. And then, yeah, as you say, it's, it's, a, it's a big reward to see that this actually does improve, hopefully, you know, the lives of people and that all that work was worth, worth it in the end. So if you had to summarise your policy-focused recommendations based on everything you've seen, both with the mental health research and the learning loss research, what would you be asking policymakers to focus on? Well, my focus as an education researcher is on schools. And I think what we have highlighted is the great importance of doing something about the mental health. We cannot just think that children go back to school and the mental health will cure itself. It will most likely not, according to our findings. So support is needed there. And uh, the research on learning loss, uh, we also know that support in, in catch up for learning is needed. But maybe it's the, the recommendations are a little bit different than just to say uh, we have to focus on disadvantaged um, families along the classical disadvantaged lines. Schools will obviously be assessing their students and, and finding out individually who has had the biggest learning loss. And we will learn about that over time. But what we what we would recommend according to our research is that we learn the lessons from the pandemic. We, we give the type of support that we see as needed. And, and this means providing high level of resources targeted to engage boys as well as girls and helping families use that um, support. They are willing and out there 
to engage and and it it just needs the the right materials the right type of communication and the right equipment to for them to be able to do so this would be our message the early intervention foundation is a government what work center dedicated to ensuring that effective early intervention is available and used to support children and young people at risk of poor outcomes i asked tom mcbride their director of evidence what that meant in practice What that means in practice is that we generate evidence across a whole range of areas from the early years to mental health and well-being and childhood vulnerability, but then work very closely with both central, local government and other key stakeholders in this sector to mobilise that evidence so it changes policy and practice. So before we get into talking specifically about Begita's research, what has the Early Intervention Foundation noted when it comes to children's experience of the pandemic? That's a really interesting question. Um, and I think we don't yet fully understand what impact the pandemic and lockdown has had on children and young people. But there's really powerful emerging evidence that has had strong impacts both on learning and mental health. And we need to really fully understand what those are and how they develop over time, but also think about what interventions and support is needed to help children who are experiencing those mental health difficulties or learning loss as a result of the pandemic. Particularly, I guess, because we're not sure we're out of the woods yet with regards to the pandemic. We can't be certain that there won't be further school closures, can we? Absolutely. I've I've no insight here, but it seems to me that further lockdowns and school closures could be a feature uh, of the landscape in the future. We obviously hope that's that's not the case and we hope that government will do all they can to keep schools and early year settings open, but we need to understand what impact this ha- has had on children. So what's your response to Begita's findings that the mental health of children suffered significantly through the school closures? I mean, this is fantastically important research. Um, We really do need to understand fully what impact this has had. And it's only through analysis like this that we can really start to unpick what the mental health impacts have been. We can all hypothesise that school closures would have an impact on children's mental health, but it's only through research like this that we can understand what that impact has been, how quickly any deterioration in mental health rebounds as schools reopened, and if there's been different differential impacts for subgroups within the population, perhaps by gender, ethnicity or age. Yes, because I think one of the things that struck me about Begita's research is the fact that the mental health didn't rebound very quickly, that the detrimental effects continued. That's quite concerning, isn't it? Yes, it is. But it's hugely important that we understand that and and how that changes over time. The policy response that is needed uh, obviously is very different if we understand that children's mental health has deteriorated over the medium and long term as a result of school closures. And I think for me, again, the other thing that the research highlighted is that for our children, school is about so much more than just learning. It's about the socialising, the healthy diet, the exercising. How do you react to that? We know that school plays a hugely important role in in the lives of children. Um, And I, I think understanding that it's not just learning loss, but mental health, physical activity and so on and so forth has been impacted by school closures. Is, is not surprising, but it's very important to quantify that. As a, as a parent myself, I really understood how much school meant to my children when they weren't able to go. So what can be done to get children's mental health back on track? That's a really good question. Well, first and foremost, we need to understand the impact that lockdown has had on, 
on children's mental health and this research is an important step on that. We also need to have systems in place that are able to identify children and young people who are having difficulties with their mental health and well-being. And then we need a range of services which can help support those children and young people, including evidence-based services where appropriate. We also need a whole school approach in our view to think, making sure that mental health and well-being is at the heart of school policy, as this is an important factor in children's learning and development. And so when you talk about ways to identify the children that are in need of extra support and then the services that can then provide that extra support, can you give me some examples of of what ideally you'd like to see? Yeah, well, we would like to see a, a mental health support service that is well-funded and takes the evidence on effective approaches seriously. In July of last year, we published a comprehensive review of effective approaches to supporting adolescent mental health through school-based interventions, looking at a range of uh, conditions and problems. And that really goes through in some detail what some of the most effective approaches are and also where the big gaps are in our evidence base on how to support children's mental health. So any policymakers listening to this podcast, what would you like them to hear and take away from this? would like them to understand that The mental health of children and young people appears to be deteriorating and we need to take that very, very seriously. Mental health and well-being in adolescence is hugely predictive of how well children do at school, but also later life outcomes. Children who struggle with their mental health are more likely to go on to struggle with their mental health throughout life. So we need to design and deliver services in a way that can identify children who are having difficulties and make sure they're provided with the support they need. That That includes looking at what we know about effective approaches, but also addressing some of the bigger gaps in our evidence base. And that actually raises a question in my mind. What was happening to children's mental health before COVID? So has, like many elements of our life, has COVID simply made worse problems that were already there? It's a difficult question to answer this. It it does seem to be that mental health of children and young people in the UK is, is deteriorating. There is evidence to suggest that. And consensus seems to be that that is not just greater awareness of the problems, but that is a genuine deterioration in children, children and young people's mental health, including greater incidence of anxiety and depression. What sits behind that is a very complex question, but it does seem to be something that we need to take very seriously. If we move on now uh, to talk about the learning loss elements of Big Eater's research. So again, learning loss across children has varied. What can be done about this? You know, how best do we move forward and try and address that loss? So similarly to mental health, the first first part is just understanding who are the children who um, experience significant learning loss over over the course of the pandemic. And then it really needs to be providing individualised and targeted support for those children. So I think there's been good progress in this and government has announced significant amounts of funding and initiative to support learning loss. Um, But this is something that we're going to have to keep a close eye on over the coming years to make sure that we don't lose that focus on supporting those who experience the biggest losses in learning over the period of the pandemic. The element of of research that suggested that the loss was down to things like IT and not the will of parents or, you know, the lack of will of parents to try and step in and and help. For me, that was a reassuring reason in that it's a sort of a tangible reason. If it's it's down to sort of lack of IT, that's something we can sort. It's not as simple as that, though, is it? 
Well, parents' ability to to support their children's learning is, is going to vary hugely. Um, and I think it's going to vary by age, it's going to be vary by background, it's going to vary by employment status as well, and how much time parents can give to supporting their children alongside trying to hold down a job. So it's not simply a question of making sure that everybody has the IT, but it is yeah, that is clearly a necessary, if not sufficient, step in supporting children when they're learning remotely. Obviously, another part of Bagita's research was that the mental health of mothers in particular suffered. Does that resonate with what you would expect? I mean, speaking in just from a, a personal perspective, I, I'm not surprised by that myself and my partner had to, to homeschool two children and, and hold down jobs. And that is an extremely difficult and, and challenging experience and there's no surprise that this has disproportionately impacted on on mothers Uh, I think one of the interesting things about the research seemed to be showing that 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 mental health rebounded much more quickly than children and young people and it seemed to be predominantly a function of the the stress caused by trying to homeschool children alongside working. So moving forward what would the Early Intervention Foundation like to see in place? So we'd like to see a recovery package that prioritises identifying children who have experienced difficulties as a result of the pandemic and providing evidence-based support to those children. And we'd like to see that that is a holistic approach that thinks about learning loss and mental health and well-being simultaneously and recognises that mental health and well-being is an extremely important component of children being able to do well in school and succeed. So we we are pleased to see a focus on uh, education catch-up, but we'd like to see mental health and wellbeing services uh, prioritised within that. You can read more about Begita's research via the publication section of the Understanding Society website. My thanks to Begita and Tom for contributing to this discussion and to you for listening. <laughs>